don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And this week, we have a fantastic conversation for you with Donald Robertson, the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, who, of course, is a famous Roman emperor. And uh, Donald Robertson is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, trainer, and writer. Uh, he's from Scotland, and he's been applying, researching and applying Stoicism to his work for 20 years. One thing we talk about in the show is StoicCon, a big convention for people interested in Stoic philosophy that's coming up uh, later this October. Um, more information in the episode, but uh, if you really love this episode, you can go into the deep end of the pool of these ideas that really talk about death a lot and how to think more clearly and uh, have more equanimity and peace through uh, just lots of rational exercises, including remembering you're going to die. But don't take it from me. Let's uh, dive right into uh, this conversation with Donald Robertson. Donald Robertson, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, stoicism, um, you are an expert in that as well as uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people think of stoicism as a philosophy that is kind of antique, you know, from ancient times. Um, and you do a really great job in your introduction to this book, How to Think Like a Roman Empire uh, Emperor, mm -hmm. um, and talking about how this philosophy has actually inspired a lot of modern psychology, mm -hmm. um, different therapies, is very much um, like underneath a lot of uh, our modern world. And I was wondering if you could just begin by introducing the connections between Stoicism and uh, today. Yeah, sure. Um... You know, I, well, first of all, I think Stoicism had a lot of really fantastic ideas, and so they were never going to go away. It's what Aldous Huxley called a perennial philosophy, like it's bound to be rediscovered by subsequent generations, if it's even if its popularity waxes and wanes over the centuries. So I think of Stoicism in, in many respects uh, as being the, the kind of great granddaddy of psychotherapy. Uh, and also of much of the, the self-help literature that we see today, I think many people will realize, or many connoisseurs of self-help out there, and many people realize that self-help books often have a lot of similar themes and ideas in them. Many of those themes and ideas can be traced back to Hellenistic philosophy, particularly uh, the Stoics. So the Stoics also provide the philosophical inspiration for cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, which is a leading evidence-based form of modern psychotherapy. And I can probably sum that up in a, a nutshell. The, the basis of cognitive therapy, the fundamental premise of it, is the idea that our emotions are shaped or determined by underlying beliefs. And those beliefs could be true or false. Like They could uh, be distortions or exaggerations. And so we can question uh, their validity. We can question the evidence for them. And the Stoics knew that 2,300 years ago, they were way ahead of the game. And uh, the early pioneers of cognitive therapy would teach this idea, the cognitive theory of emotion, as we call it, to their clients. 
they have to you have to simplify all the research uh, to communicate it to to uh, the lay public like ordinary clients usually so the job of a therapist in a sense is kind of like involves a sort of translation of technical concepts and research into layman's terms and so one way the pioneers of cbt did that was by quoting epictetus one of the most famous stoic teachers and in passage five of the Enchiridion, his famous handbook, he says, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And so that's probably the most famous quote from Stoicism. Every cognitive therapist knows that quote because it beautifully encapsulates and expresses the fundamental premise of the cognitive theory of emotion. That's wonderful. Thank you. Um, so you start the book uh, in the place that I want to start which is Marcus Aurelius on his deathbed mm -hmm. out at the front. Yeah. And um, you say the Stoic philosophy he follows has taught him to practice contemplating his own mortality calmly, rationally. Uh, to learn how to die according to the Stoics is to unlearn how to be a slave. And mm -hmm. I'm just, can you describe why you chose to start the story of Marcus Aurelius there at the end at death. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm very familiar as you can imagine with the story of Marcus Aurelius's life. And my favorite part of his life is his teenage years, I guess his adolescence when he was studying philosophy. Uh, but that's the kind of nerdiest part. You know, we learn a lot about the details of his life as a youth and the teachers that were, were teaching him about rhetoric and philosophy and stuff like that. And in terms of writing a story, it's almost like a training montage. So we have all this stuff about his development, but it is not a dramatic place to open a book, right? It, it's a little bit dry. It's a little bit of a deep dive into the development of his character and philosophy. So I thought we can't start there. Like, it's not attention-grabbing enough for a story. It's, it's, you know, we need to kind of build up to that a little bit. So that created a problem for me, and I thought, well, how can we start this book in a more dramatic way? You know, it's important that you get the reader's attention at the beginning of a book. Many people will just read the first paragraph and then decide whether they want to continue with the book or not. So I thought, let's start with his death, um, because it's a very dramatic scene, and it puts us right into the middle of some of the toughest and most challenging, some of the most dramatic philosophical concepts that we're going to deal with. And then once we've addressed his death, we can go back to the beginning of his life and follow things through in chronological order. And so at that point, I think the reader would be ready to go through the, the details of his development as a youth and so on, how he got to the point of being into Stoic philosophy. So I, I chose to start there because I think it really sets the scene for the rest of the book. It gives the, the reader an idea that Stoicism is really addressing these fundamental existential issues. Like there's some really deep stuff. Um, and I thought it was a more dramatic and more attention grabbing for them as well. But you'll notice that creates a problem for me, right? Because then when I was writing the book, I thought if we're going through it in chronological order and he's already died at the beginning, like how are we going to end this thing? And it wasn't until I was about halfway through, I thought I'm going to have to figure this out as I'm writing. You know, what are we going to do to end the book? Otherwise, it's just going to fizzle out. And in the process of writing it, I thought, why doesn't he die again at the end? We can do it twice. If we're going to do that, the only way that we can do it realistically is if we revisit the death scene from a different perspective, and I thought, what other perspectives are there? 
And then I realized, well, a first-person perspective, which is a really odd thing to do at the end of the book, um, to suddenly jump from a third-person to a first-person perspective. But I thought uh, I'd kind of gamble on that, and hopefully readers wouldn't object too much, because it also, for the audio book, allowed me to make the final chapter resemble a guided meditation from a first-person perspective. And I thought that would be pretty intense uh, to do, and I was curious as to whether people would like that or hate it. And so, fortunately, now that the book's been out there for a while, it seems like people quite quite like that idea. So he dies at the beginning and at the end of the book. I mean, considering how often he talks about his death in meditations, I think it's fair to have him die twice. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and this idea of um, training to die his whole life is taken up in the next pages with... Um, you know, it, it sounds like his stoic training began at the age of 12. Yeah. Uh, and it included mortality meditations from the beginning, as well as other things. Can you, I don't think people are um, so familiar. I mean, stoicism is not like a faith-based idea where you just believe in it. You have to train in it. Can you talk a little bit about why and how uh, the ancient uh, Romans used to train in stoicism? So this idea I think you have in mind is that today philosophers kind of sit in libraries reading books and stuff, right? You know, maybe they sit around and talk in seminar rooms and they go to conferences and things like that. That's kind of what philosophers do. Um, but that is not what ancient Greek and Roman philosophers were like. And I think the shorthand way of explaining this is that in the ancient world, um, if you saw a philosopher in the street, it was normally assumed that you would be able to recognize them by their appearance, right? Because there were different types of philosophers and their lifestyles and practices changed over a period of time that we're talking about, maybe spanning about five, 600 years or so, obviously changed a lot in different countries. But uh, typically philosophers in the Socratic tradition, including the Stoics, would often wear uh, plain, uh, cheap, uh, woolen uh, robes that were undyed and uh, they wouldn't wear a, a shirt underneath their uh, robe or shawl that they wore, the philosopher's trebon it's called. They would often grow long beards. Many of them would go around barefoot. So, you know, people would be able to recognize them by the way that they were kitted out and even by the way that they grew their beards, allegedly. And some people even believe that you could tell which sect a philosopher was a member of by the, the style of his beard the length of his beard. So in the ancient world, philosophy was more like a Western yoga in some ways. Perhaps that's a, a good analogy. And some sects of philosophers were more academic. So the followers of Plato, for example, studied mathematics and geometry. And it was more bookish and theoretical and metaphysical. And hence, that's why we talk about things being academic today. The academy was the name of the school that Plato founded. Um, and yet that mode of philosophy, that way of being a philosopher in the ancient world was contrasted. There were two opposing views. One was the Plato's approach and the other one was Diogenes the Cynic's approach. And Plato used to say that Diogenes the Cynic was like Socrates gone mad. And uh, Diogenes used to kind of criticize Plato and his students for being nerdish and academic and bookish and so on. And the cynic view was that logic and metaphysics and stuff like that were kind of a distraction and that philosophy was much more about self-improvement and working on your character. 
So Diogenes the cynic went around naked and he was constantly training himself to endure hardship. And I think the Stoics positioned themselves a few generations later, somewhere in the middle. So the Stoics took this moderate view that studying logic and metaphysics and stuff like that might be useful, um, but only insofar as it potentially contributes to improving your character. And studying theoretical or bookish subjects for its own sake could potentially become a vice if it just becomes a distraction and it, it doesn't really help you to become a better person. So I think the Stoics saw themselves as kind of finding a middle ground between the cynics on one extreme and the academics on the other. But for them, Stoic life philosophy very much was a, a lifestyle and it consisted of following a, a, a set of psycholo uh, psychological and moral practices as we see, uh, for example, in the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Can you give me an example of a Stoic training? What is something that 12-year-old Marcus Aurelius might have done with his Stoic tutors or um, peers? In the first book that I wrote about this subject, The Philosophy of CBT, I tried to provide an overview of all the psychological techniques in Stoicism. And then I didn't count them at the time, funnily enough, but then later I went back and counted them, and there were about 18. Right. So first thing is, there are a bunch of different psychological strategies that the Stoics use. Um, so I'll, I'll just pick one for convenience. And one of the, the most curious ones, and one of the ones that's most prominent in the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which is probably the best known Stoic texts, is called today The View From Above. And that's the name that a modern scholar, Pierre Hadot, a French academic, gave to it. The Stoics often describe these techniques or take them for granted, and don't necessarily attach a name to them, though sometimes they kind of do. And this one we don't know what they called, but we call it today the view from above. And it, there's a couple of different versions of it, but Marcus, for instance, tells himself repeatedly, perhaps every day, to stop and literally visualize in his mind's eye that he can see things from high overhead. A bit like the gods looking down from Mount Olympus. You know, for anyone that's maybe seen old movies like Jason and the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans or whatever, there might be scenes where they have Zeus and the other Olympian gods looking down on the mortals like they're pieces on a chessboard or something. So it partly comes from this mythological idea, the gods looking down for, from Olympus. People sometimes today call it a helicopter view on things from high above. Um and also, incidentally, um, you know, men, many uh, ancient uh, cities uh, grew up around hill forts. And so Athens would be a good example of that. In the middle of Athens, there is the Acropolis. And it's a high point. It literally means a high up part of the city. So the view from above could be compared to the view from the Athenian Acropolis looking down on the Agora, uh, where all the, the business and all, all the life, all the politics and the law courts were taking place. So it gives us a kind of detached perspective on things and allows us to see the bigger picture. And so Marcus sometimes takes that a little bit further into what I would call the cosmological perspective, where he says, not only in this kind of picturesque way, imagine that you're, you're looking down on things as if you're high up in a hill or a mountain, but actually think about the whole of time and space, this more metaphysical, more cosmological idea 
almost like you're adopting the perspective of God himself, a God's eye view on the universe, and try and stretch your mind to imagine that your current situation is like a tiny speck in the vastness of cosmic space, and just as he puts it, the mere turn of a screw in the vastness of cosmic time. And the Stoics think that's reality. The truth is that our lives do take place within this vast context, and we're, we're constantly uh, neglecting to, to think about it. But when we do that, they believe it, it helps us to view things in a more detached and yet still realistic manner. So they saw that as, a, as contributing to what the Stoics called apatheia, or the freedom from strong, violent, irrational desires and emotions. It's a, a, a fundamental technique of Stoic therapy. Right. So the idea is if you can get that view from above, kind of right-size yourself as one small speck among many, you can do what's for the greater good or do what feels right from that perspective. It also encourages us to, it, it, there are many things it encapsulates, but one of them is it highlights the impermanence of things. So if we imagine the broader perspective, so of course it's impossible to imagine the whole of space and time in the way that Zeus or the way that God might. But the Stoics want us to try, like even the attempt to do that, even the effort to do that, they think is helpful while accepting that we can never do it properly or vividly. But uh, thinking about our current actions within a broader spatial and temporal perspective does a number of things. And one of them is that it highlights our sense of the transience of material things, like the Buddhist idea of impermanence. And, you know, to, to bring it back to something that's very relevant to your podcast, it highlights our sense of our own mortality because it, it makes us more aware of the, the brief span that our, our life as a whole occupies and the brevity of, of human life in general. And the Stoics thought that was salutary. They thought it was uh, helpful, it was beneficial for us to, to bear in mind um, the brevity of life and the transience of material things. And that would help us put things in perspective so that we're not placing too much importance on individual events that happen to us in life. We're still facing the reality of things, but by broadening our perspectives, it, it helps us to avoid blowing things out of proportion. Now, I, I, let me just add one little kind of footnote to that. I believe the Stoics were way ahead of their time, psychologically, in many respects, and it's worth just pointing this out. Modern research in psychopathology tends to show that when people experience strong emotions, particularly anger and anxiety, they narrow down the scope of their attention and engage in what we call selective thinking, kind of biased thinking. So when someone is anxious, they do something we call threat monitoring. They look for possible signs of danger in their environment, and they tend to ignore possible contextual cues and signs of safety. So often when people are really emotional, they distort their thinking, they think irrationally, they blow things out of proportion. So usually we can think about several things at once, right? but when we're under stress, it's like we can only really think about one or two things, as if we're taking a magnifying glass and putting the most upsetting part of the situation under a magnifying glass. And that impairs our ability to cope. It affects our problem-solving ability. It amplifies our emotional response. And it's also kind of like committing a lie of omission. We're leaving out information that might lead to a more kind of balanced and rounded appraisal of the, of the whole event. And so the stories were encouraging people in many different ways uh, to do the opposite of that, to expand 
the scope of their awareness. And actually, today, we know that that's a, a very sound psychological strategy. Right, right. You know, it it does remind me of um, a favorite Marcus Aurelius quote um, that kind of puts together the view from above with uh, the impermanence ideas. Uh, and that one is Alexander the Great and his mule driver both died and the same thing happened to both. They were absorbed alike into the life force of the world or dissolved alike into atoms. Mm-hmm. And this idea of that kind of pulling you out of a place of anger or focusing on what's going wrong or what might be dangerous. How do these big thoughts sort of do that? Just pull you sort of up and out of it and then you can see it from, you can see more rather than focusing on that small thing that's going wrong? Yeah. So it's not, you know, one of the problems, uh, one of the challenges of modern psychotherapy is that when people are struggling with unpleasant emotions, they tend to vacillate between doing two different unhealthy things like many things in life, you know, people go back and forth between two extremes, both of which aren't working. So one is that they dwell excessively on the thing that upsets them, like they put it under a magnifying glass. And the other extreme is they try to go into denial of it and block it out or distract themselves or suppress it from their mind, right? So those are the two main ways that people cope with stress. And they're both really unhelpful most of the time. And so the Stoics went around looking for an alternative. How can we face things that are upsetting without being overwhelmed by them? And how can we stop ourselves just running away? How can we stop ourselves avoiding things and blocking them from our mind when they're, they're too painful? And the Stoics realized that we need to confront unpleasant events, but do so from a different perspective. And they have a number of different ways of doing that. You know, so they have a very nuanced approach. Like I said, there are many different aspects to it. But one of them is just to broaden their temporal and spatial perspective. So say I lose my job, I get sacked from my job and my boss like, is mean to me and I think it's really terribly unjust and awful and unfair. Um, the Stoics would ask us to take a step back and picture that within a, a broader perspective um, to think about it maybe from high overhead or to think about the, the larger chronological time span there are many ways we could do that but they think that by doing that we can still confront the situation but we'll find it less overwhelming than before because there isn't just one stimulus there isn't just the bad thing um, evoking our emotions we're also aware of possible opportunities in the future and other positive experiences that we've had in the past. And those compensate or balance each other out. So we end up by taking in this complex tapestry rather than just having kind of tunnel vision for the negative, the worst part of it, by broadening our perspective, we have a more balanced and nuanced emotional response. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you another way of doing that, actually. Maybe it helps. So we can imagine that we're in a helicopter looking down or looking down like gods from Olympus. But another way we can do it chronologically that we do all the time in cognitive therapy is a client will come in and they'll say, look, my girlfriend dumped me or my wife says she wants a divorce and it's terrible, it's a catastrophe, I feel awful about it. And then the therapist, this is one of the laziest things that therapists can do, but it works like 90% of the time. It's like an easy option, an easy win in therapy. The therapist can just say, well, what's probably going to happen next? And then the client will usually say something bad, like they'll say, well, I'm probably going to be really depressed, you know. I'll sit at home and I'll, I'll cry in my beer and I, I won't speak to any of my friends for a while and I'll, I'll just feel awful about it. And then the therapist says, and then what's probably going to happen next? And the client will say, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll 
feel a bit better gradually over time, but I'm still going to be really depressed about it and feel awful and stuff. You know, for like weeks, I'll probably struggle with things. And then the therapist says, and then what's probably going to happen next? And so the client's encouraged to move forward in time, thinking about the longer temporal picture that emerges. And eventually they'll have to end up saying something about coping. So that gets them to focus more on their coping ability and resources. So they'll say, I'll guess I'll get in touch with some of my friends and try and kind of rebuild my social network and my social life. Maybe I'll start dating again. And then what's probably going to happen next? Well, I guess eventually I'll move on and I'll meet someone else. So the, the bad thing has still happened and it's still a bad thing, but it's not as overwhelming if they've managed to broaden their temporal perspective and see it as one moment that's part of a larger and more complex story that has both ups and downs in it, which, of course, is the truth. Right. The whole stoic idea of uh, accepting that we cannot control what happens to us. Yeah, that's an important part of it. You know, one of the fundamental ideas in stoicism is to make a sharper distinction between things that are under our direct control um, which is only really our own volition, our acts of will and the way that we choose to think about things and then everything else that happens to us. So it's really a distinction between our own actions and things that happen to us or our experiences. And, you know, I, I, this is really integral to modern psychotherapy as well. It sounds like a truism. Epictetus opens the very first sentence of the Stoic manual, the Enchiridion, the Stoic teacher Epictetus, it's one of the main texts that survives today. The opening sentence says uh, some things are up, are up to us and other things are not. Now, that seems like, in a sense, a, a really banal thing to say. It's a truism. Of course, some things are up to us and other things are not. That's like saying some things are big and other things are small. It seems uninformative. But at the same time, it's also profound. Because although it's self-evidently true, people every day think, act, and feel as if it wasn't the case. Like they, they constantly parse their experience in a way that blurs this boundary. And so it seems like stating the obvious, but it's important for people to remind themselves of this. We have a tendency to get confused about it. And certainly in therapy, all the time we see anxious and depressed clients trying really hard to control things that aren't directly under their control and, and often that backfires it contributes to their uh, anxiety or depression and causes other problems and often they're neglecting to take responsibility to take ownership for things that are potentially under their direct control now i can give you some i'll give you a deep dive in that later maybe in some specific examples but this is a, a kind of recurring theme in therapy so epictetus was bang on the money in that regard and again way ahead of his time yeah, I guess I got into Stoicism almost by accident, just sort of picking up the books, looking for things. And now uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and Enchiridion are some of the most dog-eared, marked up, and grabbed books on my shelf. Because I guess in my life, they're almost like a workable map or um, GPS for my emotional landscape. Whenever I feel stuck, they're one of the books I'll just grab and leaf through until something sort of suggests a different way of looking at what has me uh, stuck or down. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other reasons, there are many things that, that explain the popularity of Stoicism, but you know, one of them is those two texts in particular, actually Seneca as well. Um, the Enchiridion consists of a lot of short sayings, 
And so does the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. And in this day and age, I think people find it easier to process sound bites like that. They're all, they're almost like a bunch of tweets, right? They really are. The Enchiridion. Yeah. And, you know, much as we might, we oldies might kind of sneer at that and think, you know, uh, is that do people not have the attention span that they used to or whatever? They can only deal in sound bites. But, you know, the Stoics thought it was useful to condense their philosophy down into a couple of sentences because they said, look, you have to be able to remember this in the face of adversity. Like when someone walks up to you in the street and spits in your eye, you need to be able to remember your philosophy. So you can sit and debate it till the cows come home, but it needs to boil down to some simple statement or principle that you can keep ready to hand. They compare it to, you know, the Enchiridion, the name, kind of can be translated as manual, the name of this book, but it also in ancient Greek implies a, a weapon like a sword or a dagger. Um, and the, the connotation of it is that it, it's something ready to hand, like a dagger that could be drawn at a moment's notice. And so the, the idea is that these sayings are uh, tools, weapons that we can arm ourselves with. Um, so they're always available to us. We can commit them to memory and we have them there when fortune assails us. That was how they, they tended to think about it. Whereas, you know, an elaborate, complex philosophy might be interesting, but it might be harder for you to to tap back into it when you're really facing a, a difficult situation. And I, just as an aside, Seneca, who's, you know, one of the finest writers of antiquity, um, a, who wrote in Latin, a uh, famous Stoic author, in the, in the ancient world, subsequent generations ridiculed Seneca um, they thought his style of writing was too much uh, consisting of sound bites and aphorisms. Um, but many famous quotes are derived from Seneca's writings, and that's what makes it memorable. And that's part of the reason that Seneca has continued to be popular today. Whereas at the time people thought that was a kind of coarse style of writing, you know, today we look back on it and think, no, this is a really great style. Like you can pull out lots of, there's lots of takeaways, uh, take home nuggets of wisdom that you can derive from Seneca and you can quote him in a tweet or something like that. So it's easy for people to relate to. Now, I think that's of practical importance. Yeah, I was thinking about this actually of like, how does this actually work? How do these short memorable statements or quotes sort of help, you know, and it my little personal theory is that we as humans tend to make the same, I don't know, dozen or so mistakes in different ways over and over and over again. So you have a, a number of memorable quotes addressing, you know, these same things, and eventually one will be right for you. I think so. I mean, I think there's also an art to processing them. Marcus Aurelius, you can see in the meditations, and um, incidentally, I mean, this is a cool little piece of trivia. We, we know a lot more about Marcus Aurelius than most people realize, like, because he was a big deal back in the day. He was a Roman emperor. So we have histories of his reign and archaeological evidence and stuff like that. But we also have a cache of letters between Marcus and his Latin rhetoric tutor, a sophist called Marcus Cornelius Fronto. Those were found in the middle of the 19th century. And in those letters, cut a long story short, Fronto tells Marcus to take philosophical sayings and practice paraphrasing them repeatedly to find exactly the right metaphor or word or phrase to really capture the meaning of the idea. And uh, you can see, weirdly, when we pick up the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, we can 
see him apparently doing precisely what Fronto told him to do because he returns to the same idea over and over again in that book but expresses it in different words and it's like he's struggling to try and find the best way to articulate his idea so I, I would think maybe if Marcus was around today he might suggest that we do the same thing and that we take the, these good quotes that we get from, from him and from Seneca and from Epictetus and practice putting them in our own words in ways that really resonate with us personally and that we find easy to remember. And I think you're right. You know, most people, there might be a handful of similar errors that they keep encountering in life, problems that they keep running into. And so if they can think of a, a phrase that acts like a trigger or an anchor for evoking a more complex set of attitudes, I would say, you know, the quotes in themselves have some power, but really uh, Epictetus talks about this to his students. They're much more powerful if they're the conclusion of a complex argument or set of practices. You know, so when Marcus, at one point, he sums up the whole of Epictetus's philosophy in three words and the whole of the philosophy of Heraclitus, his other favorite philosopher, in three words and in Greek. And uh, he says in English, uh, the universe has changed, life is opinion. Now, that quote in itself would be kind of misleading. Like, you know, it's too condensed for other people maybe to understand exactly what he means. But Marcus knows what he means. Like, he's trying to come up with a, a little slogan that he can use in his own mind to symbolize this entire philosophical tradition. Um, and so it's easy for him to remember and you could imagine when he's stressed out, he only needs to say those three words to himself. And then he evokes not only their meaning, but all the memories that he has of countless discussions about what it means to uh, understand the Enchiridion and discourses of Epictetus more profoundly. So we're, we're, when we use these little aphor aphorisms, they're of some value in themselves, but they're of more value if we can connect them to a, a, you know, a more profound set of practices and a more profound understanding of the philosophy that we've probably established over time through study and practice. Hello, everyone. Thanks for letting us bop in here with a quick little break. You know, We Croak is such a growing and exciting thing. And Hansa has just launched a brand new part of the We Croak website. Hansa, could you tell us all about the uh, Ask Death column? Yeah, so it's an advice column newsletter where you ask any question you want, like, uh, how do I get over a bad relationship? Or, um, you know, uh, how do I deal with a difficult person at work? Uh, only the character or the voice that answers is death. And it may sound crazy, uh, as fun as it is, but it's also based on a stoic exercise that brings equanimity called taking the view from above, which is about taking the largest possible perspective. Uh, so it's really fun content. We're having a lot of fun with it. I hope you check it out at wecroak.com. Uh, and uh, what are some other ways people can help uh, spread the word, Ian? Oh, well, right from that website, if you're already there checking out the new advice column, you know, please, if you're not already a part, check out our awesome Patreon page. It has all the latest episodes um, we post on there so that you're always in the know. Um, we have We Croak Leap, of course, our subscription model with the largest number of um, quotes that we've ever put into the app. And, uh, and Hans and I, you know, we're, we're just getting started. So welcome back to the, the newest season of the We Croak podcast and uh, can't wait to uh, 
take us through to the end of uh, 2020. And on that, let's get back to the uh, episode. Right, that idea of training a more robust and resilient outlook on life. And I have to say that was one of the things I absolutely loved about your book, because of course, Meditations has become a really important book to me. But besides knowing he was a Roman emperor, I knew next to nothing about his life. Um, And you fill in so many interesting biographical details of how he came to be. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, from the early days of Greek philosophy, this idea of a philosopher king was almost like a holy grail of something that could happen for a a polis or a society. And, um, you know, I think in Marcus Aurelius, we have the rare event of a leader who was really committed to philosophy. And I'm wondering if in the history, were, were Romans better off? Under Marcus Aurelius? Yeah, for that. Uh-huh. Gosh, that's a vexed question. <laughs> and it, it's difficult to answer, actually, because it it's quite difficult to appraise uh like a historical society, and you run into these problems of the evidence we have mainly comes from the privileged classes. So the histories we have are written by senators or, or other Roman uh, officials. So they're kind of biased, right? We're not getting, we're, we don't have books written by slaves from that period, for example, describing you know what they thought of Marcus Aurelius's uh, role as emperor. So who, you know, whose opinion is it that we're evaluating? And what criteria do we use? Are we looking at the economy or the military? Like, you know, or the, the culture? Like, so they, that's a big question and there'll be lots of different perspectives on it. I would say, traditionally, it's been said that Marcus was one of the good emperors, famously by Edward Gibbon, um, you know, he said that, that Marcus was the last in a line of good emperors. And then notoriously, his son Commodus signals the, the beginning of the decay of the Roman Empire. Um, that's kind of traditionally how people have tended to look at it. What was life like under Marcus? Um, one thing that I would say, and this is a touchy subject, right? So people who are into history always get kind of quite emotional about this. If they disagree. Right. But I think one thing that, that seems fairly clear to me is that Marcus had critics. Like he, Not everybody liked him. How do we know that? Because there was a civil war. Like, so there's a big clue. Um, it, there actually was a civil war. Uh, one of his generals was declared emperor. So there was a rival emperor. Uh, only briefly, because he ended up being assassinated by his own officers. But that, that guy was supported by several senators, uh, another senior Roman statesman. So we know there were people that didn't like the way that Marcus was ruling. Now, what was it that they didn't like about it? I think it's clear that they didn't think Marcus was militaristic enough. They thought he was too soft on the northern tribes that had invaded the provinces and even got all the way down into Italy during his reign. So ironically, Today, sometimes criticize, people criticize Marcus because they think he might have been a warmonger because he spent much of his reign at, at fighting what's now known as the First and Second Marcomannic Wars. But I think the evidence suggests that during his lifetime, he was trying mainly to pursue a long-term strategy. He was more of a military 
dove. He was trying to secure peace. He was a master diplomat and negotiator. Um, and I think this split, this temporary civil war occurred because his senior general in the east of the empire thought, can't we just go there and kill them all like, and be done with this? have a kind of scorched earth policy. He was more of a military hawk. So that's something I think that is re relatively clear about Marcus's reign. There was some controversy about this idea that maybe he wasn't aggressive enough from a military point of view. That's, uh, that's really, really interesting. And um, one thing I was thinking about is that, you know, one of the problems at least I see today in the world is a lot of... Um, naivete, I guess, on how to navigate an emotional or a rational landscape within yourself. And um, just to give a modern example um, is, uh, I believe you say that, you know, one of the things that um, Stoicism teaches is that it's impossible to be angry without some sort of opinion or belief that someone has violated um, an important rule or law. And um, one of the things that I, I, I'm not sure if you have them, I'm not where, where you are, but in the United States, um, you know, we're having a, a lot of trouble with conspiracy theories, you know, people who believe there's an elite cabal of child abusers, you know, getting high off like baby's tears and abusing kids below pizza parlors. And, you know, if you were, if you come to believe that kind of thing, um, based on something you saw on Facebook or something like that, it's impossible not to be angry. And once you're angry, your vision narrows and you become very manipulatable, um, easy to manipulate. And I was wondering if you could just talk about um, that idea of how people who might not have your best ideas at heart can use these concepts to manipulate you. Well, this is one of my favorite subjects and actually it was one of the stoics favorite subjects you know the problem of anger seneca wrote an entire book called on anger about the therapy the stoic therapy of anger and we still have it today and it's one of the main themes in the meditations of marcus aurelius um marcus opens the meditations the very first sentence um is him saying that he admired his uh, natural grandfather on his father's side uh, for his freedom from anger. And Marcus tells us in the meditations that he himself struggled with his own feelings of anger. And he describes a, a, sh a shocking number like uh, of psychological strategies for coping with anger and returns to them many times throughout the book. So and to some extent, even the meditation, we have this book by Seneca, but also the meditations of Marcus Aurelius places a lot of emphasis on overcoming one's own feelings of anger. And uh, that's relevant uh, today, partly because of the, you know, the conspiracy theories and also because of internet trolling and stuff like that, bullying, um, you know, because the current political climate's infected by scapegoating and divisiveness and uh, partisanship and hatred and anger and all of that, that kind of palaver. And, and so the Stoics thought anger, in a sense, is one of the most problematic emotions. There are many things that I could say about it, but uh, I think the Stoic ideas are incredibly relevant today. You know, I almost want to say I think the Stoics could save us. The Stoics could help us, you know, with this crisis, a uh, pandemic of anger 
that we're facing, which, you know, the uh, coronavirus pandemic, I think, has been uh, downplayed by politicians, particularly in America, but in other parts of the world as well. The scientific community are pretty consistently clear um, that the the public perception of it and the the opinions of many politicians have trivialised the seriousness of the the pandemic. Um, But the pandemic of anger, I think, is actually worse, ironically, because apart from anything else, it's this pandemic, I think, will go on for a lot longer than many people realise the coronavirus pandemic. But the pandemic of anger is going to go on even longer. And uh, it affects everybody to some extent. So I think we really urgently need to do something about it. We're heading closer and closer towards the precipice of disaster as a society um, and the first world in general, unless we, we do something about it. Why is that? What do you know about the psychology of one person in anger that at you know critical mass of angry people spells disaster? Yeah, gosh, like, okay, because the whole kind of worms, there's many things that we could say there, right? I mean, first of all, in order to get people's attention, like uh, in the ancient world, we had these guys called the sophists, and Socrates and the Stoics thought they were problematic. They were rhetoricians who gave speeches and tried to really evoke the emotions of big crowds. They won celebrity through giving uh, great speeches, and they swayed political assemblies by the, the use of, of colourful language and uh, powerful uh, the powerful speeches that they gave. And so they saw that as a big problem. And I used to think it's not as relevant today. Maybe some politicians are like that, maybe some self-improvement gurus. And then one day it hit me that actually it's still here. Um, but the sophists are now have now been replaced by algorithms. You know, and Facebook is a sophist like twitter is a sophist like it hits us with the things that we applaud and react to the ancient sophist did that socrates criticized them for saying whatever won the largest round of applause or whatever drew the biggest crowd right and a surefire way to do that is to say stuff that's shocking alarmist and sensational right and so the news media today is just getting more and more hysterical and distorts facts more and more because they're in competition for ratings and people on social media are in competition for engagement and likes and followers. And so they say crazy, controversial, outrageous, alarmist, attention-grabbing things. And then that progresses so much that it becomes the culture that we live in that's dominated by rhetoric, sophistry and you know, alarmist verbiage and kind of object. I remember when I was a kid that journalists used to investigate stories. Do you know, you've probably seen it in the movies. Like, and that the art of investigative journalism and objective journalism seems to be kind of crushed. You know, like the, uh, the nowadays people are, are, their lives are dominated increasingly by algorithms that are feeding them whatever is going to excite the most attention. And so like the Stoics are great at giving us advice about, you know, being ready for that. And the Stoics think we have a duty to ourselves and to society in general to protect ourselves against rhetoric and emotional and psychological manipulation from the media. 
by and from people on the internet or just from people in general who are trying to, to push our buttons. So they want to make us scared because then we pay more attention to them. By, and then they get more engagement and they make more advertising revenue. And then when we get scared, we get angry. By, and when people get angry, they become irrational. The Stoics were way ahead of their time and realizing that anger is temporary madness, as they call it. And the, the best, there are many, many things I could say about anger, but I think the best advice that I can give to people is, look, it's crystal clear that from modern psychological research on anger, that when people get really angry, they experience all sorts of cognitive biases and they, they don't think rationally. People who are really angry tend not to be as good at problem solving, especially in complex situations such as interpersonal problems or political problems. They'll reach for simplistic uh, solutions without properly thinking through the consequences. People who are angry, we know, tend to underestimate risk, um, so they do dangerous things. People who are angry tend to think in terms of generalizations, so they're prone to scapegoating and stereotyping. And so the, the Stoics, again, I talked earlier about how they would sum things up in a short statement, but to really understand the short statement, you have to kind of elaborate on it and think about the, the wider conversation. Well, all the things that I've just said can be summed up in the Stoics saying anger is temporary madness, or I would say anger makes us stupid. You know, and look at the climate at the moment. We're all getting stupider and stupider because we're allowing ourselves to have our, you know, for to let people press our buttons, and let the social media and the news media press our buttons constantly. So we're in this angry, stupid, temporarily insane state of mind where we make terrible decisions. I um, love this sort of metaphor of algorithms as sort of sophists 2.0. And I now have this image in my head of like one of these ancient Roman speech givers talking to the Colosseum of people only they're able to speak uh, to each person, give a speech individually tailored to them while having data on what, uh, what traumas or um, what appeals to that individual person. Uh -huh. And like Socrates said, they're not going to get at the truth that way. You know, their whole focus is on saying whatever wins the biggest round of applause or gets the most attention or evokes the biggest reaction. And Socrates said that is not a way to get to the truth. In fact, ultimately, that's going to lead you further and further away from the truth. That's the problem with sophistry. And so he said, you know, Socrates says sometimes the sophists sound like philosophers. They, they even quote philosophers and they would talk about virtue and things like that. But Socrates would say the whole thing is different, though, because their underlying motive, the whole direction that they're heading in, is very different from the direction in which we should be heading. Like we should be trying to get to the, the truth. Sometimes the truth is boring. Sometimes the truth is painful. But that's not, you know, what you're going to get from these guys. You know, what you're going to get is whatever generates the most attention. Like there are uh, attention-grabbing uh, junkies. You know, like, uh, but now it's a, it's a bunch of algorithms that are doing it. Um, and so we have to kind of protect ourselves in some way against this. And, you know, the Stoics think there are several ways we can do that. One is by learning to suspend our strong value judgments and to understand our emotions and see, understand the psychology of what's happening to us. So we gain cognitive distance. We don't allow ourselves to kind of confuse our value judgments with objective reality 
Another way is to practice describing events in a more balanced, objective and rational manner, stripping away all the emotive language that other people are using. And another way, like we mentioned earlier, is a view from above, you know, and just uh, taking the longer view and the, and, the, and the broader and more cosmopolitan perspective on things so that we can, we can get things a, a little bit more, uh, you know, in a rational perspective. So the, these are many other strategies the Stoics think we need to practice using in order to defend ourselves against sophistry. But I, I really think we, anger needs to be our focus. As a therapist, I would say, you know, we deal with many negative emotions, but uh, people with anxiety or depression tend to be self-blaming. So they're more likely to seek therapy because they think they have a problem and they need help with it. Whereas people who mainly suffer from anger tend to be other-blaming. So people, someone who's really angry is going to think, I don't need therapy, you need therapy. Right? So they tend not to self-refer as much. And when they do refer for therapy, it's often because someone else, like their wife or husband or a friend or an employer, has told them, buddy, you really need to go and have therapy while you're out of control. So usually it's because someone else has pointed uh, out to them that they have a problem. Or it's in an institution, like a prison or a school, um, where they've been told, you need to go and have therapy for your anger. But angry people tend not to seek out therapy, so there's not as much modern literature or research on dealing with anger. But there's a beautiful irony about that, which I, which is that I believe anger is actually one of the most easily treatable emotional problems. Um, you know, these people are avoiding therapy, but, but they're the ones that could most easily benefit from it, I think. And uh, I think it's a big irony as well that everybody talks about self-improvement, right? And the internet's awash with personal development articles and stuff like that, right? That all the self-help literature that people read, they're consuming it like never before. But I think it's strange that although everyone talks about self-improvement, very few of them are talking about addressing their anger because that would be the easiest place for them to begin in most cases. Yeah, so, okay, let's, let's bring this right down to the most concrete level. I opened Facebook to respond to a message there, and the Sophist 2.0 has put um, the first article on top of the feed, something that just makes my blood boil because it knows exactly what I care about and what I'm likely to engage with. My blood is boiling. Under normal circumstances, I'm going to spend a few minutes being furious. I'm going to yell. I'm going to post about things, get off track. Um, what do you suggest that I do instead to interrupt that anger all right well this is a controversial technique but first of all i'd say when it's a strong feeling of anger and we haven't been working on it for a while like we're not we're still kind of developing our skills and figuring out our strategies i would say that the first strategy that people should use is a timeout strategy right so that first of all you need to spot when this is happening which is you know you've already spotted it and sometimes people need help and training in doing that more effectively and then you just need to pause like so i would say set it, learn to set these things aside and sleep on it if necessary or you know at least wait a few hours or whatever until you've calmed down the stoics talk about doing this um as long as that doesn't turn into avoidance right the problem with timeout strategies is that sometimes people just avoid things that upset them that's different from saying i'm going to wait a little while and then come back to it when i've calmed down and i can think more clearly about it so that's the first thing because all the other strategies that you could potentially use will generally be easier to use if you've allowed the initial feelings of anger to abate naturally over time. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. We call it the postponement strategy. We use it for other things as well, but it, it works for anger. As long as it doesn't turn into a, 
uh, avoidances. Oh, you know, I'm going to go back to this later, but I'm going to go back to it once I've had time to kind of chill. And... So step one, slam down, shut your computer. <laughs> yeah, shut up. Tell it, you know, and also, like, the, the way that I would encourage you to think about that is think about it in terms of hijacking your attention, right? I would say your philosophy should be, you should say to yourself, I'm the boss of me. I'll decide when and where I think about these things. Not Facebook, right? Facebook's not going to hijack my attention just by shoving something in my face, right? Why I might respond to this, but I'll do it at a time of my choosing. Why I'm not going to have my attention hijacked like that. So that, I would say that's the first thing, why is to make it a matter of principle to yourself that you're going to choose the time and place when you respond to things rather than just doing it kind of impulsively whenever your buttons are pressed like whenever facebook like chooses to uh, present a stimulus to you and and overall that's going to give you a lot more emotional control right but the the other thing i think to be uh, on the lookout for and maybe this comes a little bit further down the line is to think about the nature of anger itself the stoics believed that anger fundamentally is a desire for revenge and sometimes people debate that, but I really think it's a good guiding principle because especially now I look at people when they're angry and sometimes they'll say, I just, it's not the desire to harm or the desire to have revenge. Like People will kind of debate that a little bit. But when I look at how they behave when they're angry, it doesn't look to me like they're trying to help the other person that they're angry with, right? If someone's trolling me, on the internet and they really, you know, piss me off, like and I, you know, my, my, I can feel my temples throbbing, I don't really feel like helping them. And the Stoics said, following Socrates, the, the wise man or woman f has the fundamental desire to help and improve their enemies, not just to kind of punish them back. Because when we do that, when we seek revenge, when we get angry and we want to hurt them or insult them back, we're now just as bad as they were. And Socrates said, it's a desire to make your enemies worse. But when you make your enemies worse, you make your environment worse and you make life worse for yourself. Like, so, of course, like if someone's trolling you or something or you see some news that you don't like and then you comment on it angrily, you're just going to now contribute to it and provoke a bunch of other people who are going to become even angrier and even stupider in the way that they respond to you. So it's kind of like a race to the bottom that we start until someone's smart enough to step back like, and interrupt the, the, the spiral downwards if that makes sense. And so, you know, it's hard, but sometimes when people are insulting us, you know, we've got to think, how, what's the goal here? Is it just to kind of annoy them back or provoke them or insult them? That's where anger would lead us. Or do we genuinely want to try and help this other person view things differently? And that's going to take a lot of tolerance and a lot of patience, you know, maybe putting up with some you know, BS um, but Socrates said that's what the wise man or, or the wise woman is like. You know, like they can take a lot of abuse from other people, but fundamentally what they want to do in return is educate them and improve them and rehabilitate them and make them better, you know, not make them worse. Yeah, I guess that goes back to this idea of training we've been talking about for a while of, you know, there's that technique of you have to practice it. Notice that you've been seized by anger, maybe because someone's trying to manipulate you. Um, interrupt, close the computer, stop whatever you're doing. Three, reach for that, you know, aphorism or tool that pulls you back up to 
the um, the higher view, the, the the sky perspective, or the view from above, I think is what you called it. The main, I'll give you a couple of other strategies. Okay, so the most important Stoic strategy would be cognitive distancing, as we call it today in cognitive therapy. And so the Stoics say, um, you know, I could say that another person is old or young or they're tall or they're short, um, or I could say that they're an idiot or a fascist or, like, you know, a, a, an awful person. And because of the 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 way the, that we phrase those things, it kind of looks like they're all just properties that I'm describing, but they're not. Like, saying someone's an idiot or they're an awful person is a value judgment. Like, it's not the same as saying that they're big or small or old or young. Like, those are objective properties. And the Stoics say that when we use these emotive terms and the value judgments that underlie them, we're adding something to the external event. And the Stoics thought we're placing too much value on external events and not enough importance on the way that we then cope or respond to them. And they think that is the fundamental problem in life. It's the root cause of all psychological and moral problems. So they thought what we need to do is realize there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, in a sense. Um, but certainly our strong value judgments, we need to realize our things that we're projecting onto other people or external events. And so we need to practice taking more ownership, more responsibility for uh, projecting those values onto other people and externals. And that's all summed up in Epictetus saying uh, it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. Really grasping what that means, really taking that to heart alone um, is the most important thing that a Stoic can do. But there are also a bunch of techniques that uh, can help people to to gain cognitive distance, as we, we put it. Um, the way that Aaron Beck, the founder of Cognitive Therapy, described it was he said, imagine you're wearing a pair of rose-tinted glasses and you look around you and you think that building's pink and that cat is pink and that guy over there is pink because you've been wearing them your whole life and so you've forgotten that you're wearing rose-tinted glasses and now you just assume that the things that you look at are that colour and then someone comes along and they knock your glasses off and suddenly you realise it's not the guy and the cat and the building that are pink it's the glass that's pink that you were looking through. And the Stoics would say we look at the world through catastrophic glasses or awfulizing glasses or, you know, glasses that make other people seem just like awful, idiotic, you know, fascist people when we impose these value judgments on them. And so we need to realize that it's fine maybe to do that as long as you realize that that's a, a, a value judgment that you're imposing or projecting onto external events and you take responsibility for it. Because doing that alone, we now know, because there's a great deal of psychological research on, on this subject and this strategy, realizing that alone um, will tend to dilute the intensity of your emotional reaction and it also increases cognitive flexibility. So it makes you smarter, more able to cope with complex situations like dealing with other people. And it'll mean that you're less a victim of your, your own anger and other negative emotions. If you can just really grasp this idea that it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them and, and really see things that way. If you can realize that you're looking at the world through 
rose-tinted glasses or catastrophe-tinted glasses, you know, and, and not confuse the colour of the lens with the external events, then you'll have liberated yourself to, to some extent from toxic passions. And I think that's one of the main things that we can do to help ourselves. The, the other thing that Stoics suggest doing is modelling, which is a simpler technique. And so they would just say, well, how might, so does everybody have to feel the same way about this? Like say somebody says something or you see something in the news and it really pisses you off and makes you irate. Like, is this the only emotional response that's available? Like, might you think about it differently a year from now when you're looking back on it? Um, would everybody else in the world have the same emotional reaction to it as you? And, you know, more importantly, would a wise and virtuous person respond to it the same way that you're responding? And if not, what could you learn from imagining how a wise and virtuous person would respond. The Stoics call that the sophos, or the the concept of a, a perfect sage. So they spend a lot of time trying to really study and understand what the, the human ideal would be. Like they, they really try to understand what wisdom would look and feel like. Um, and by doing that, it makes it easier for them to kind of project themselves into that perspective and say, what would Epictetus do? What would Marcus Aurelius do? What would Socrates do if they read this thing on Facebook? Like anything that allows us to kind of shift our perspective, like will actually potentially be of some benefit. But particularly if we can shift our perspective by broadening it or imagining how a wiser, more self-disciplined, more patient, more courageous person might feel and think and act and respond to the in response to the thing that that's bugging us yeah i had a previous guest on this podcast professor agnes collard from the university of chicago who had a critique of kind of the stoic um views on anger as always being like get out of it as quickly as possible using these techniques and basically what she said was that, yes, anger has all these dangerous parts to your cognition and your your mood and your life enjoyment, that it's absolutely dangerous, but we also need it to do things like create a moral code, uh, to act when things are very wrong, to have the urgency to uh, tell someone in your life that um, you need change. And I was wondering if you have a response to that critique. Yeah, I disagree with that. I think it's a terrible critique and it's a flawed, a deeply flawed argument. Um, and actually, it's a, I think it commits a, a well-known logical fallacy called uh, which logicians and philosophers refer to as the fallacy of affirming the consequent. So basically, it's true that anger can potentially motivate us but it's not the only way that we can motivate ourselves. And neither is it the best or even typically a good way of motivating ourselves. And saying, this is an old, old argument, by the way, the Aristotelians used to say that righteous or moderate anger could be helpful partly because it can motivate people. And the Stoics opposed that. They said, no, 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 no. Like, you know, anger is inherently irrational. Like, so even if it does motivate you, there are better ways to gain motivation that don't compromise reason. Like, so I would go with that. 
but they that it reminds me you know I, mean, I hope this doesn't sound glib but I think the, the easiest way to articulate the response to that criticism or that theory is there's a meme on the internet that says coffee it allows you to do stupid things faster and with more energy like I don't know if you've ever seen that meme right I think I have seen it yeah Anger allows you to do stupid things faster and with more energy, basically. That's what I feel the motivation mm. defense of anger is basically saying. So, yes, it's true that anger makes us biased and it distorts our thinking and makes us rubbish at social problem solving, but it motivates us. Like, that's like saying anger allows us to do stupid things faster and with more energy. Like, it's dangerous. And also, you know, anger, as Seneca emphasized in On Anger, one of the problems with it is that people think they can control it. They think, I'll just let myself get a little bit angry about this. But, you know, take a step back and look at the history of humanity. Anger escalates. Like, you know, it's like playing with fire. You know, time and time again, you'll see people thinking that they can use anger to kind of get their point across or the feeling motivates them to be more assertive. But usually it just escalates things and makes the situation worse. It'll tend to provoke the other person, and then you'll get increasingly anger, angry in response to them. And then before you know it, things are blown up in your face. Like, so I think anger is dangerous. It's like playing with a wild animal, playing with fire. We need to be very, very careful about the idea of trying to enlist it. And you know, this idea that it can motivate us, I don't think makes any sense at all when we acknowledge the fact that it quickly escalates and can easily uh, distort our ability to problem solve uh, and think through uh, a situation. Um, that doesn't that doesn't seem like a good strategy to me. There is nothing that anger can do for us that reason can't do better, in my opinion. And uh, you know, in many situations, really smart people, uh, really smart people, debaters, boxers, martial artists. Uh, will often use anger against their opponents by trying to make their opponents angry um, because people realise that when their opponents are angry, whether it's in a, a debate or whether it's in a boxing match, like Muhammad Ali when he was fighting George Foreman, famously that was his strategy. Like he went to the ropes and whispered insults in George Foreman's ear and tried to make him as angry as he could because he, he realised it would make him a, a less effective boxer. He was going to win the match that way, you know. Uh, anger, anger is ris a risky strategy to employ. There are other ways that we can motivate ourselves that don't involve taking on the the risk of impairing our problem solving ability. Okay, um, what is the better way to discover and feel committed to um, your a moral code, if not in anger? Well, love would be a good one. You know, this stoicism to a large extent, I think, can be understood as a philosophy of love. And so, you know, there are challenges in doing that. We don't really talk, except we talk about it surprisingly little, but the clue is in the name of philosophy itself, right? The word philosophy means love of wisdom. And the Stoics took that word literally, right? That's what they were doing. They were engaging in a pursuit that was defined by the love of wisdom. And, you know, so they encouraged themselves to really admire the best in other people. Book one 
of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius is all about him praising the wisdom and virtue that he perceives in other people. And so it's an extended meditation on the best qualities in other people. And that admiration, that respect, that love for what's best in other people, I think is a much healthier, uh, much more beneficial, much more stable source of motivation, not only for the individual, but for society in general. But it takes training and effort. Training and effort. Um, I'm almost there seeing how you could do it that way. Um, I'll give you the analogy that you used to use in the ancient world is very simply is that, uh, you know, a, a good soldier, a hoplite or a legionary um, doesn't fight because he hates the enemy, like, but he fights because he loves his country and he loves his comrades and his family and he wants to protect them. And there's a big difference like, between those two sources of motivation. So it might even look like they're doing similar things on the surface, like, but the underlying motivation is moving in a completely different direction. I might punish somebody. Like, say, if I'm a politician or a statesman like Marcus Aurelius, there were times, doubtless, where Marcus had to punish his enemies. Um, perhaps a client state had betrayed the Romans. But there's a big difference. It might look similar on the surface, but there's a big difference between punishing somebody because you just want revenge or you want to hurt them and punishing somebody because you want them to actually learn from it and grow better and stronger right, and be improved as a consequence. And so, like, the, the, really, the desire to benefit other people, even to love our enemies, as Marcus puts it, and to want them to become wiser, more virtuous, like, to improve them, um, really is, uh, I think, what needs to be motivating us. Otherwise, we all just end up fighting each other, right? Look at the divisiveness in America at the moment. Like, if people disagree with others politically, they should be trying to persuade them like they should be trying to, to win them over, to convert them to what they consider to be in a more enlightened point of view, not just trolling them on the internet and provoking them even more. Yeah, it's, it is a strong argument. Um, and I'm trying to bring it down to some of the fights happening right outside my door here in Brooklyn, where, you know, just the other night, um, I had probably over a thousand protesters walk by chanting Black Lives Matter um, with a lot of justified anger at police. Another video had come out of the many of outrageous, basically murders state of, uh, you know, uh, usually young black men. And it's hard not to see it as just 100 percent righteous anger um, and feel happy that people are taken to the streets often in anger, also love and wanting to protect um, black lives. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, when something like that happens and you see the video, how do you not respond in anger? And um, how, why is it helpful to even try? Do you know the main, I mean, there are many strategies, we've touched on a bunch of them, but the main thing that persuades me is the argument in book one of Plato's Republic, right? where Socrates responds to a famous cliche in ancient Greek society. His interlocutor says to him that justice consists in helping your friends and harming your enemies. And uh, do you know who the last person I heard saying that was? This might surprise you. Who? Richard Nixon was caught on tape 
saying almost exactly the same thing that he wanted uh, the the US tax office to help his friends and harm his enemies. So weirdly, he articulates this classic Greek theory of justice, which Socrates, the beginning of the Republic, attacks persistently because he thinks it's crazy and irrational. And everyone around him thinks, well, what's the alternative, Socrates? And essentially, what the, the conclusion that he nudges towards in his typically vague, roundabout Socratic way is the idea that we should help our friends and help our enemies. Because Socrates believed that when we really desire to harm our enemies, we're just making them even worse than they are already. And I think that's the attitude that we see when people get angry online. Um, it's like... You know, some of the, not everybody, but there are some individuals, like, when they become very angry, it's almost like they're trying to provoke a fight, right? And, you know, really the thing to do would be to try and calm both sides down and get them to talk more to each other. Like, I know that seems impossible at the moment, but, you know, like, it has to be ultimately what happens is if you have two large segments of society that are so completely at loggerheads like this and violence is breaking out eventually like the only way to resolve that is for these two factions to speak to each other and actually start to listen to one another and that's only going to happen once they can get beyond the red mist of anger in my view uh, and i think as long as people act out anger through violence and insults and provocation, they're pushing the other side further and further away and preventing meaningful dialogue from taking place. We see this happening throughout history when there's been division in a society. What it reminds me of is the the conflict between Protestants and Catholics, for example, in Northern Ireland. You know that raged for decades, uh, and uh, you know resulting in, in atrocious acts of terrorism and, and domestic terrorism and and violence, um, you know, really kind of corroding the, the culture. Um, and, you know, eventually people had to reach an understanding and there had to be forgiveness involved, you know, before peace could be arrived at and, and there could be some kind of reconciliation. Um, and the sooner we get to that point, the better, I think. You know, I don't think, uh, I, I think we have to learn to see through anger and rise above it. We're better than that. Like, but to do that, we have to stop seeing the other side as idiots or the bad guy. Like, you know, we have to be willing to extend an olive branch to some extent. Like, if we're going to win other people over to what we consider to be a more enlightened perspective. I think uh, Ireland is a, a very persuasive argument to uh, what you're saying. So uh, you have some things coming up. Uh, I believe a stoic con. Uh, taking place virtually, of course, because of the pandemic. Um, where could listeners sign up for StoicCon and what could they expect to happen on their computer screens if they did so? Well, Modern Stoicism is a nonprofit organization. It's run, it was founded in 2012 by Christopher Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at Exeter University and an expert on Stoicism, among other things. And so it's run by a multidisciplinary team of volunteers, psychologists, classicists, philosophers, including some well-known authors, experts in the field of Stoicism. And this is our eighth international annual conference. And we're anticipating maybe somewhere in the region of seven or 800 people attending around the world. 
It's happening on the 17th of October and it will be a virtual conference because of the pandemic. For the first time, it's going to be online. And uh, we'll have a, a whole day of speakers, many well-known authors, uh, John Sellers, William Irvine, who wrote A Guide to the Good Life, one of the best-selling books on, on Stoicism. I'll be speaking at it. Christopher Gill will be speaking at it. Um, you know, several other authors. And then we also have lightning talks. So we invite anybody who wants to speak to come and just speak for five minutes. And we'll have, I think we're going to have 12 lightning talks. So that's all been one of the most popular things that we've done in the past is just have loads of these really short presentations from a bunch of new speakers as well in the in the middle of the conference just to break up the format a little bit. So I guess people could just Google Stoicon2020 or if they go to the website modernstoicism.com for the, the organization, the non-profit, they'll find links there to the, uh, the event listing website. It's open to anybody. Anybody can come along. And also this year, um, we, as an experiment, we decided to make it payment by donation. So uh, you can just choose how much you want to pay for a ticket. And then that means that students or people on a low income don't have any problem attending. But if we have any generous millionaire philanthropists out there that want to throw a few hundred uh, dollars our way to support the cause, then they can pay a little bit more for their, their tickets if they're so inclined. But you, you choose whatever you want to pay for the tickets this year. Yeah, one of the things I love about the idea of Stoicon is I think in ancient times um, that, you know, philosophy was something you did together with a cohort, mm -hmm. uh, with friends, with people who would help remind you uh, with these maxims of like how to, um, you know, get back into the right perspective. Um, they would go to meetings and stuff like that. And it wasn't a solitary thing at all. Like self-help today often feels like just buy the book, it's a product, download it and then do it. And um you know, ancient Stoics said that's not a very good way of training your mind. Mm -hmm. Do it together, kind of like Buddhists have this idea of sangat and yeah. um, uh, community being a really important to practice. And uh, it's, it sounds like there's room at this conference to meet other people who are trying to live philosophically yeah. and to interact. And a wide range of people from different backgrounds as well. I think it's it's always very useful for people to realize it's not just a bunch of academics or not just a bunch of therapists. We've got people from the military that are really interested in stoicism. We have baseball coaches, you know, we have, uh, you know, people who have suffered from chronic illness. Uh, one of our speakers, uh, Karen Duffy, is a former MTV presenter. Uh, it's been in some movies and stuff. And she suffers from a, a chronic illness and wrote a book called Backbone, How to Live with Chronic Pain Without Becoming One. And so she has a chapter in Stoicism in that book, and she's talking. That's a great title. Yeah, she's a kind of humorous writer, right? And so very different style, very different approach, and applying it to how Stoicism helped her cope with chronic pain, as Marcus Aurelius did. He famously suffered from chronic chest and uh, stomach pain uh, throughout most of his adult life, and a lot of his use of Stoicism was helping him, him deal with his physical frailty and, and illness. Um, just as an aside, what you said about the community, to come back to something we talked about earlier, I said anger is underrated as a target for personal development. It's being part of a community uh, that really helps people to address anger. When people are just sitting at home ruminating or reading articles and uh, reading self-help books, the, uh, anger is the cornerstone that they discard 
Like it's the opportunity for personal development that they tend to have a blind spot for and ignore. But once you get people in a community and they're interacting with other living, breathing human beings, they tend to become more aware of their anger and their prejudices and their blind spots. You know, and I, I think they can make progress very quickly there. It's the royal road to personal development, dealing with our own anger, I think. But it's easier when we start to talk to, to other human beings because anger is very much uh, an interpersonal emotion. Yeah, I think uh, I cannot agree more that community is the way uh, to make progress quicker. Um, so I'm glad that you're doing this. And of course, your book that we've been talking about this whole time, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius is uh, available everywhere. I think it's a really popular book. Um, uh, if people want to discover more about your writing or teaching, is there a particular place they can go? Yeah, they can just go to my, my website, which is donaldrobertson.name. So it's just my name, but .name instead of .com. And I have free downloads and online courses and a lot of social media stuff, and they can get it all uh, through that. And I guess I should say, so that's my latest book, and then I've, I've written a bunch of other books people might be interested in. But I should give a plug for the one I'm working on at the moment, although it won't be out for another year, just because it's a whole different ballgame. I'm writing a graphic novel at the moment. And I'm kind of halfway through it. It's about Marcus Aurelius and it's about Stoicism. Um, so this is a whole different world to me. And it's kind of an adventure for me. So I, I, I'm I looking forward to see what people think of that. Because I think, like doing your podcasts, it's an opportunity to reach a slightly different demographic, a, a different audience of people, some of whom... Uh, might not really have come across Stoic ideas before. And that's always something that I, I'm particularly excited about doing. I love that. Are you, are you drawing the pictures yourself? No, I have an illustrator called Z Nuno Fraga, who's based in Portugal, who does all the artwork for me. And I'm the scriptwriter, like Stan Lee. He wrote the scripts and Jack Kirby uh, drew the, the pictures uh, for Marvel Comics for a lot of them anyway. And uh, so I, I get to write the script and uh, Z does the artwork. And it's all done. Uh, you know, we're at the, sta the fun stage of colouring in now, pretty much the inking and colouring stage. So we have an entire 250-page full-colour graphic novel. So it's, gonna, it's quite a hefty project. It's not just a little comic. It's like a big, big deal. And we tried to put as much philosophy in as we could. But as I was writing it, it, it really it did change my perspective on Marcus Aurelius. Actually, maybe it's worth saying, um, because this is the theme of your podcast, right, um, that I know that the Stoics placed a lot of emphasis on milite thanatu, or the, the practice of contemplation of death, that they got this idea from Socrates. They, they talk about it a lot, and it's a major theme in books like The Meditations. But it wasn't until we drew the graphic novel and I really started to visualize Marcus Aurelius's life that I realized that this is a guy who must have opened his eyes every morning and thought, wow, I'm actually still alive because his life was far more exposed to ongoing risk than we would be used to today. The pandemic that's going on at the moment has made many people more aware of their own mortality Marcus Aurelius lived through a much worse pandemic called the Antonine Plague, which was much more visible to him. We don't see people dying in the street from COVID, 
Marcus Aurelius uh, lived through some kind of smallpox type disease, which went on for at least 15 years um, and ravaged the empire, killing maybe as many as 5 million people. People have uh, lost fingers, they went blind, they had uh, sores all over their faces and uh, everywhere the bodies were being carried out of cities by the cartload and tossed in mass graves and funeral piles. So Marcus was surrounded by uh, these quite like a horror movie for much of uh, his reign as emperor and he may, he was very aware of the risk of assassination, civil war, even uh, he took himself to the front line during the Marcomannic Wars where he was clearly at risk if the enemy managed to attack and overwhelm the legionary fortress where he was based. Um, so I, I think this is a guy who was much more viscerally conscious of his own mortality. And in the meditations, when he talks about accepting death and reflecting on it and appreciating the present moment, looking on life as a loan, a gift, um, you know, I, I, I can see that um, as something that was partly philosophical and also partly forced on him by the uh, incredibly uh, challenging circumstances that he found himself in. Uh, wow, I, I can't wait to take a, a look at that. I actually really love graphic novels, so um, I'll look forward to that. And uh, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It was absolutely a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, likewise, it was a pleasure to be on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I, I, hope, uh, I hope it does well. And uh, I look forward to maybe to hearing from some of your listeners in the future as well. I, I hope that some of them are able to make a, a long to stoic on. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you again, Donald Robertson, for joining us for the first episode of season four of the We Croak podcast. The book you got to check out is How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And Saturday, October 17th, is the eighth annual Stoic Con, a whole day of speakers. The first time the event is virtual, everyone is welcome. We hope to see you there. And until then, We'll see you next time.